Well, I want to dive back into Corinthians. We're going to be moving along at a fast pace today, so I hope you're strapped in. Everybody got your Red Bull or whatever caffeine you're taking down. Um, so I'm going to tie part of what we talked about into the previous two messages, okay? But we are moving on in Corinthians. I've had numerous, numerous uh, appreciations, feedback as far as the last two messages. A lot of it dealt with our sexuality and where uh, Scripture leads us um, in, our, in our bodies and with our physical intimacy. And so if you did not get a chance to hear those, I'm really going to recommend that you go back and um, the Sunday before and last Sunday's uh, review those messages because I found so many people come up to me and say how helpful they were. And especially if you're a parent and you've got a child that's either in that middle of that adolescent age or they're approaching that, I'd really encourage you to grab hold of that. That was from chapters 5 and 6. I'm going to skip over chapter 7. I'm aware that I'm doing it, so you don't have to let me know that I missed one. But, um, and I know, and here, here's, here's why you would tell me. It's because there's some of you that you've got the journals and you're working the journals really, really strong. You hate blank pages, right? Okay, I'm about to make you uncomfortable. We're going to create a blank page. I will come back to that later, but that talks a lot about marriage and some divorce issues, and I'm going to work that into a different series. We're going to come into that because I'm going to tackle that in a much broader range where I can do, do it some justice and not just give it a Sunday. And so we're going to jump into chapter 8 and 9 today, and that's a little scary, so I'm going to give you a running start at what this is about. 8 9, Paul is dealing with one question. Paul is dealing with one issue. Now, he's going to have lots of different examples of it, but he's dealing with one single issue, and it has to do with our freedom. And he's asking a very particular question. He's going to affirm very quickly that, yes, in Jesus Christ, we have freedom. And then he's going to do something. He's going to ask a question that's going to run all the way through chapter 8 and chapter 9. What will you do with your freedom in Christ? Remember, Paul's goal what he's trying to do in this church in Corinth is he's trying to teach them how to think like a Jesus follower. It started with lots of issues about knowledge and how knowledge seemed to make them think they were better than what they were. He's saying, no, no, you, you're, you're wise, but you're trying to be wise like the world is wise. I need you to be wise like people that follow Jesus are wise. And so if you want to write anything, you can just write freedom next to chapter 8 for following along in our, in our journals. But I'm going to give you a quick outline of what's going on in 8 and 9, and then I'll show you how this sets us up to wrestle with the question that Paul wants us to ultimately wrestle with, is what will you do with your freedom in Christ? Because we're a people, we like our freedoms, right? We, we like our rights. And Paul's going to come back and say, but what will you do with that? So, Here's the quick, the quick outline is this. Chapter 8 in verses um, uh, 1 through 13, which is the whole chapter. Uh, it's a short chapter. He's dealing with this issue called the, just summed up as meat offered to idols. Now, 
if you're unfamiliar with the letter that we call 1 Corinthians or this part of the Bible, this may seem a little strange. What's going on in this ancient city of Corinth, as would happen all across the Mediterranean world, is as they worshipped, there would be these sacrifices made. Now, this was not just unique to the Jewish people. This was also unique to uh, a part of the, the pagan religions. And so these religions would go and they would worship with one another, and they would have the sacrifices just like, just like the Jewish would, and they would offer these to what you and I would call false gods. They were idols. They were made of gold and stone and wood and jewels and all that. But, but we would look at that and go, well, that's just superstition. What was happening, though, was all of the, the best of the best sacrifice, just like the Jewish people, would be brought to these temples. And then the animal would be sacrificed. The priest of the temple would take a certain amount of the meat, and that's how they lived. That's how they fed themselves. And then to raise money for the temple, what they would do is they would sell off the rest. Now, imagine, because they don't have anything invested in the animal. They didn't raise the animal. They didn't care for the animal. They didn't feed the animal. They just butchered the animal. So their cost is really, really low, and it's super high-quality meat. And so what would happen is they would then take that and they would sell that to the public. Now, now we could look at that and go, I don't care how it was processed, I'm good. But you would probably at least pause for a moment if you went down to HEB today, and I love HEB, and in their meat department you found pre-inflation prices on beef, Anybody remember those? And there was a big sign that said, due to our newfound religious beliefs and our worship of the God Ra, we want you to have this meat and we want you to know that it has been blessed and prayed over. And that as you consume this meat, it's our prayer that you would find joy, blessing, and comfort in the God raw. Would you at least pause a moment before you bought the meat? Now, that's what Paul's addressing here. Because that's what was going on is that there were some people that were approaching the market and they're like, look, we got freedom in Christ, it's a false God, it's meat, and it's a great price. And were they right? Absolutely they were right. Then there were some that had recently come out of the pagan worship. And they were now following Jesus. And so when they approached the same market, it was kind of like, oh, wait a minute. I just left that. Now they've got all these images and all these feelings and all these habits and all these behaviors that are all intermingled with actually purchasing that meat. And so there was a problem in the church that people were saying, I've got a right. They were saying, put on the stakes, let's go. And they were inviting their other friends over. They were going, yeah, but this is the God that I just used to worship, and I'm now trying to believe in the one true God. What do I do with that? And Paul's trying to help them think, how are you going to deal with that? What will you do with your freedom in Christ? And Paul begins some instructions that says, if you're causing them to stumble, and to fall into sin, you need to rethink that. Yes, you're free. 
Yes, you've got it right. No, it's not a sin, but if you're directing somebody else that way. So he's going to keep this thought going. Next, next section is this, 9, 1 through 3. He starts in this weird thing. He defends himself as an apostle, as one that can actually have spiritual authority to give these kinds of instructions. Why does he do that? Because there seems to be some question about, does he have the right to do that? So the next section picks up. Now, this is preacher's favorite chapters in the whole, all the Bible. Right here. Because what does Paul do? He defends his right, he's got the right, to be paid as an apostle. Now, from Corinth, he's not receiving any money. But he is from other places, but he's telling them, don't I have a right? He's building a case. Don't I have a right to be paid for the work that I've done among you? For bringing you the gospel message, for doing the teaching, for doing the preaching, for doing the ministry. But what we find out in the next part of it is this. Is that he's declining his right. In front of them, he says, I've got the right. It is legitimate, it's scriptural, it's biblical, it's approved by God, but I'm going to decline it. And then what we come to is the part where we're going to talk about today. And the last part is why. Why does he decline it? And so if you've got the Scripture Journals, chapter 9, verses 19 is where we're going to start reading. And we're going to talk about that why and what it means for us. So he's, he's laid out all these things, the key words freedom. So here's what he says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I may win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. See, there's Paul's why. Paul is trying to reach people with the gospel. And so, it, it's, it's very interesting what he does at the beginning. Let's walk back through some of this. At the very beginning, uh, in, in verse 20, he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. Now, that's kind of strange. Because we would look at it and we'd go, Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, you are a Jew. And what Paul's saying is, is I learned to think like a Jew. I learned to act like a Jew, and we're going, you're a Jew. I learned to, to eat like a Jew. You're a Jew, Paul. And what Paul is getting across here is that he is so committed to the Jesus mission that he no longer sees himself primarily as a Jewish person. He sees himself as a Jesus person. No longer as a Jewish man but as a Jesus man. And so whether it be Jew or the Gentile, those would be the non-Jews. Paul's saying, I, I'm no longer a part of either of those groups, but I'm going to enter into those groups. 
I, I'm going to do what may be uncomfortable or unfamiliar to me so that I might win some of them. And then he says this, and he says that I have become not under the law as it was before because I do have freedom. But it doesn't mean that I'm under no law. He, he, Paul is not going to make context that says, if you're truly free, there's no law over you. And if we stop and think about it, now we're tempted to think that freedom means you can't tell me what to do, you're not the boss of me. True freedom comes with some form of law. Because the problem is, if we were to say, I'm truly free, you may want the freedom to drive around, but you want some kind of law in place, right? Because you don't want everybody else just doing what they want to do also. So freedom comes with some guidelines. It comes with some deals. And the problem is, what we've, what we've been freed from, see, we think we've been freed from just all the rules, and that's true, but not a greater law. It's just not do whatever you want because here's what you've actually been freed from. You've been freed from yourself. Here's what's true throughout all Scripture. You are your own worst problem. I hate to break it to you, but think about it for a moment. Is there anybody in your life that's disappointed you more than you? Is there anybody in your life that's made decisions that's affected you more than you? Is there anybody in your life that you've lied to, that's lied to you more than you? We have this incredible way of thinking that we're so free and so in control, and it's really a deception yourself. And so what Jesus comes along and does is says, I'm going to free you from trying to be your own success, free you from trying to save yourself, free you from trying to make it all work out on your own, and that's where Jesus steps in and he lays down his life for us. And so now Paul says, now I'm under the law of Christ. It's his law that I now follow because of what he's done for me. He's taken the responsibility. And now I no longer have to fight for myself because he has redeemed me. That's the gospel message. And so when he says Christ's law, what's he talking about? Well, it's a quick reference back to the command, to Jesus' command. When he had his disciples together, love one another as I have loved you. You see this all kinds of places in Scripture. Love one another as I've loved you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Serve one another. This is the theme of the New Testament. And so he's saying, I've stepped under that law, and by that law, I will now find ways to serve other people, even those that currently are far from God, antagonistic to God, disagree with me. Paul's saying, I'm going to find ways, and I will step into their world. I will draw close to them. I will not keep my distance. I will move their direction. I will adopt habits and customs if I need to. I'll eat with them. And so Paul's strategy is this. Paul's saying, I'll do anything short of sin to reach people. That's what Paul's willing to do. That, that's where he's going. What Paul's not going to do is says, well, 
I've got a certain set of rights. I've got a certain set of freedoms, and nobody's going to infringe on those. Paul's saying, whatever it takes. Anything that's not sin, I'll use it to the glory of God. Now, you can ask the question, where would Paul get this crazy idea? Where would Paul think it has to go that far? And he gets it from Jesus. He's following the Jesus example. There's an incredible story. It's repeated in several of the Gospels, but I'll, I'll show you it in Matthew chapter 9. And what you need to know is in Matthew 9, Matthew's the author of this Gospel, and he writes himself into the story. He tells a story about how he first met Jesus. And he meets him as a tax collector. Matthew, that was Matthew's job. And what you need to know about tax collectors at the time is they were considered traitors because they were collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was hated. It was oppressive. And so they're collecting these taxes. And so anybody that collected on their behalf was seen as betraying God's people and betraying God. And so tax collectors did not have many friends. And Jesus walks up to him. And he's about to invite Matthew to join his group of disciples, his followers. And you know that the other disciples were going, excuse me, Jesus, this is not going to look good. The polls are not going to go our direction. We're going to trend on Twitter for all the wrong reasons here, Jesus. And here's what happens, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. So the first thing that Jesus does is he, Matthew follows him and says, let's go to your house, Matthew. And Matthew's thrilled because here's a rabbi willing to come into his house. And so Matthew's going to reach out to all his friends. Guess who the only people that Matthew can hang out with are? Other tax collectors. So now this house is full of this. Look, look at how it describes it. Many tax collectors and sinners, and all through the Gospels you'll see tax collectors and sinners, they're like lumped together. Who are you having over? A bunch of sinners. Now, I just thought of this. This is free. I'd be, what's it like if you were to throw a dinner party and you put on all the invitations or the e-invites or whatever you get the word out says, Come, all ye sinners, bring drinks. You know, you're like, I'm not sure I'm going to this party. But here's Jesus in the middle of the party. When the Pharisees, the good guys, the church people, they're not even going in the house. I picture them on the curb or kind of face up to the window going, do you believe when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And remember, to eat with them was to be in relationship with them. Very significant. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. But go and learn what this means. That is our mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but to sinners. Here's what I believe Jesus is modeling for us. And this is where Paul got his idea. Paul saying, I need to go where the sick people are. I need to go where the hurting people are. I need to go where the broken 
people are. I need to go where the people whose lives are messed up are. Somewhere along the line, our struggle is that we thought church was for all the people that got their act together. And at some point, we all told ourselves, yeah, we got our act together enough to show up. And that would be like saying, you know, or now when people come in, there's messy people in the church, there's, there's brokenness in the church. I was loving somebody come you got a hypocrite in your church. And I'm like, other than me, are we talking about somebody else? We're shocked that we have people that have sin and brokenness in their lives. It'd be like showing up at Baylor Scott and White going, hey, you got some sick people here. I didn't know. Paul says, just like Jesus, I'm going to go their direction. And so here's the principle that I believe that Jesus teaches and Paul confirms. The call of Jesus is to be distinct, but not distant. One brief message. One of the ways that plays out, it gets very personal for us. Earlier this year, again, many of you asked in this, that offering that I said, let's talk. You sent me questions. I had many, many questions. said, how do I respond to people that I care about that are involved in same-sex relationships? And I can't tell you all the ins and outs, but I believe this can be our guide. The call of Jesus is to be distinct. We don't give up what we believe. We don't give up what we talked about last week where the call of the New Testament for sexual intimacy is one man and a woman in the context of marriage. All others are called to celibacy. But like Paul and like Jesus models, I don't think the call is for us to cut off relationship. If we're going to be a light in the darkness, we've got to be where there's darkness. If we're going to be a hope for the broken, we've got to be where there's brokenness. If we're going to be a guide to the lost, we've got to be in relationship with the lost. And so that's what Paul is asking us to do. That's why Paul is willing to go through all these different... To a Jew, he's one way. To a Gentile, he's another. To the weak, he'll come across as weak. He'll draw close. He'll do anything short of sin to reach. <clears throat> Many of you may be familiar with the message. The message is a translation and is done by a man named Eugene Peterson. Now, I don't endorse everything in, in the translation, but there's a couple passages that I really think he gets right, and I really think there's some, some fascinating wisdom there that really helps it come alive. And so let me show you how the message translates 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 through 23. Okay, so here, here's this from the message. It says this. Even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. Religious, non-religious, meticulous moralist, loose-living immoralist, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. 
I become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all of this because of the message, because of the gospel. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. I love how he ends that. That's a translation that comes right from the scriptures at the last verse of verse 23. I wanted to be in on it. And what Paul is saying is what we're trying to capture in our vision, part of our vision five, that says, says, everyone lead one to Christ. Because we can demand our rights. And, and I'm for rights. I'm not against it. Trust me. But here's what I know. You winning your rights in whatever situation is never going to fulfill you like seeing someone else cross the line of faith, going from darkness to light, knowing that there's a transaction that's been made in heaven where now someone that was lost now has an eternity ahead of them. You want to get pumped up about something, get pumped up about that. And that's what Paul saying. He says, I want to see that again and again and again. Paul says, you bet, I'll do what it takes. Because in some ways, he's addicted to that. And he wants us to be too. So here's the question for you. What will you do with your freedoms? What will you do? What will we do as a church? What do we want to do? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, would you give us the passion that Paul has to recognize that we're free and now that means we're free to love we're free to serve we're free to care we're free to bring hope because we're not in charge of it anymore I don't have to worry about my own life Father that's been taken care of now help us to proclaim the message and Father to anyone that's broken to anyone that's messed up, trapped in, in a sin right now, wrestling with addiction, whatever, would you let this message be one that says there is freedom to be found. And we're going to be here to lovingly show the way. Not because we're so smart, not because we're so wise, but because we're so grateful that you saved us. Father, help us to have gospel vision to see others as people that you love and you want to redeem. Help us see others and love them as you have loved us. Father, I ask all this in the name of Jesus that I pray. I ask that you would transform each of us individually and you would transform this church to be this, the light on a lampstand, to be a city on a hill, to be a brightness in the darkness, Father, in all these ways. Would, would you get all the glory? Sure, in holy name we pray. Amen. If there's anything that we can do for you, we'd love to mention that way. I'd love to talk to you today. If I can pray with you, myself and other ministers will be down front as we stand as we worship.